Good morning, everybody. So good to see all of you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, especially grateful to uh, say my greetings as well to those joining us on our live stream. Good to have all of you uh, joining us this way. It is a privilege uh, to have folks in the room and in the other room and in your room. So, uh, fantastic. I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 7, where we will find ourselves today. Uh, We have a very uh, challenging chapter ahead of us. If you have been looking ahead, some of you do that, I realize, but Hebrews chapter 7 is a a wonderful and uh, perhaps difficult chapter, but if you look at the sermon notes that are in your bulletin, there's a little section there on today's text. One writer describes this chapter as really the focal point of Hebrews because it deals with that central aspect of Judaism, that is the priesthood. How do we, how do we come to God? Now, as you, as you find your way to Hebrews 7 and pull out your sermon notes, I, I want you to know this. Um, one of the humbling things about putting sermon notes together each week and putting them in the bulletin is that once they're printed, they're printed. And, and um, in my final run through this morning, I noticed a grammatical error. Some of you will not notice, but it's one of those picky things you look at and go, did I really write? I, yeah, wow. And I, I highlight it not to drive you nuts because I'm not going to tell you what it is. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping that you just let it go if it doesn't jump out at you. But, but my title today, The Measure of a Successful Life, looking at this interesting um, Old Testament figure of Melchizedek. Who in the world is that? And why do I care? Well, the measure of a successful life. Uh, sometimes people think about this and want to build monuments and companies and put plaques on walls and things like this. And we're going to meet a guy today who we, we know very little about. One, one lunch meeting. That's it. Nothing before and nothing after. One little window. But I want to suggest to you, by way of big picture today, what a successful life. Because in that one little window, he points ahead 2,000 years to Messiah Jesus. And if all you do or all I do in our short life is to be a signpost to Messiah Jesus, uh, we'll have done well. We'll have done well. So we have a lot to look at today. I, I think it's very fascinating and a wonderful, wonderful text. I'd love to pray for us. And we'll jump in there together. But join me, please, as we do that. Our Father, how good it is to come with the people of God and to open the Word of God and to turn our thoughts to you. I thank you for this congregation and those who are gathered here physically present and those joining us uh, live stream uh, all across this, this state and even around the world. All of us come with different needs in our lives. Some of us have had a great week. Some of us haven't. Some of us come encouraged, and some of us not. And Lord, from all these different places, we we gather as a community of faith and say, Father, we're here before you. We place ourselves before the, the guiding and leading hand of the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to shape us and mold us and to, to, to turn us to Christ. And I pray that you would do that work today. Uh, oh God, as, as only you can do, humble us, change our hearts, reach deep within us. Use your powerful word 
Thank you that we can come together to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. So on your sermon notes, as always, a couple notes of review are present, and I'll let you look at those. And uh, before I read the text, I I just want to say, uh, I'm giving you a couple of words of challenge here. If you look at that little section here in front, um, I I say, uh, please do not let our pragmatic, minimalist, generational mindset, there's, there's a mouthful for you, keep you from delving more deeply into good biblical theology. Here's what I mean. Right? We're going to read this text in just a moment and, and hear about this, this Old Testament guy, Melchizedek, and I am very aware that none of you lost sleep this week wondering about Melchizedek. Uh, if you stayed up late at night, you weren't counting Melchizedek sheep. Uh, none of you wondered, you, you spent your time this week thinking about family and struggles and life and the news and, and all kinds of things, but none of you stayed up late about this. And we are a felt need generation. I say that as a fault. We are inundated with so much information, we, we sometimes too quickly say too much information. Oh, TMI. And please don't do that with good theology. Because God has seen fit to give us Hebrews 7 that admittedly involves rolling up your theological sleeves a bit. And it would be possible for us to say, okay, too much information. Oh, no, it's not. If you plan to go to heaven someday, you might want to pay attention to how you're going to get there. And it is by our great high priest, Jesus. And you might want to learn about him all you can. And so this chapter is about that. All right, so I'm going to start reading at chapter 6, verse 19, part of last week's text, and then right through chapter 7, verse 10, and we'll, we'll get after this together, all right? So let's hear the word of God as I read. Chapter 6, verse 19, then, uh, says this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, And and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also were descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Okay, enough for one day. 
Wow, I know. Isn't that amazing? Now, it's going to go on to talk more about the priesthood, and I want to tell you ahead of time where it's going because it matters to you. It goes, it's, it's all pointing at verse 25. And I want you to see kind of the conclusion. We're not going to get there today. It'll be a couple of weeks away. Next week, Mother's Day, we'll step out of Hebrews. The week after that, the next two, we'll be right back here. But verse 25 is like the point of the chapter. Specifically, consequently, the writer says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. This is intended to give the Christian great confidence in his or her standing before God. This chapter should give you confidence that you are held in the hands before God of the greatest high priest that could ever be. That's the point of this chapter. So it's to infuse confidence as you deal with some of the details here of Christ as your great high priest. And I'll tell you this, when it says he is able to save to the uttermost, that term contains in it two elements, both time and extent. That is, saved forever and completely by Jesus. So I say it should give you great confidence in your standing before God when you have a good day and when you have a lousy day and say, oh God, it's me again you know that you come to him through Christ, the greatest possible intercessor you could have before the Father. So this is a chapter intended to instill confidence in the people of God. Similarly, chapter 8, verse 1, the point in what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest. Now, I note up here under the review section, I'm just going to make a quick comment, that the writer to Hebrews starts to talk about Melchizedek back in chapter 5, verse 10. Like he drops the name, name drops, Melchizedek, and then he says, oh, man, you guys are not paying attention. It's like he's in a classroom, and he goes, hey, you're not even looking. You're not even eyes to the front here. You know what? You become dull of hearing. And then he heads down this rebuke that we've spent a few weeks on to say, okay, snap out of it. Come on, people, pay attention. And now he's back, Melchizedek. So if you look at your notes then, I have two different headings. And they focus on a different element, I think, in verse, uh, verses 1 to 3. That is, Christ is a different kind of high priest. And then, uh, compared to the Levitical priests of old, and then in verses 4 to 10, Christ is an infinitely greater high priest. So a different kind and then greater, I think, are the, are the two emphases in this paragraph that we'll look at together. Now, we've read this chapter, and, uh, or this por- portion of the chapter, and so what I want to do under this first heading, a different kind of high priest, I want to travel with you back to Genesis. Because as you've heard me say, uh, in the book of Hebrews, the writer is assuming your knowledge of the Old Testament. Isn't that fun? He's speaking to a group of people who largely uh, are coming out of Judaism, and they know the Old Testament. We, less so probably, because we weren't raised, most of us, raised in Judaism. So we weren't raised knowing the Old Testament. So we're going to go back and I, I, I love these texts. We're going to go back to Genesis, if you want to make a trip back there with me. In fact, a couple of comments on Genesis 13 before we get to Genesis 14. Genesis, of course, by its name, means the book of beginnings. Genesis beginnings, the beginning of all that God made and began to do. So as you come back to Genesis 13, you find yourself in the Abraham narrative. And we've commented on this a bit in looking at the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. But so, so the journey continues. Abraham is in his 70s. 
Sarah, uh, his wife, of course, uh, Sarai at this time, her name has not been changed as with Abraham or Abram, uh, but she's about 10 years younger, uh, not young by any means, uh, you'd say nowadays, but when you come to Genesis 13, it's part of the, the, the Abraham story, and you find this moment when Lot, who is his nephew, uh, parts ways with his, his uncle Abraham. And what's going on? They've got too much stuff and there's controversy. Lot's been hanging out with Abraham. And of course, back then you did your whole family unit. You got all your cows and donkeys and sheep and all those things that are part of your, your wealth and your whole household. And it, it's getting to be too much. So Abraham says in this interesting moment, hey, Lot, it's, it's too much. Your stuff and my stuff, we have too much. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to let you choose you, you can go that way toward the, the, this wonderful uh, plain where Sodom and Gomorrah are. Or you can head to the wilderness. And Lot looks around and says, that looks like a great place. And he moves toward Sodom and Gomorrah, already identified in Genesis 13 as places of wickedness. And as soon as he leaves, as soon as Lot leaves, Abraham has a conversation with God. It's like, like, almost like God was waiting for, for Lot to leave. Verse 14 of chapter 13. Right at that moment, God says to Abraham, um, this word, these words of blessing, lift up your eyes and look to the place where you were, where you are. Um, I'm going to give all this land to you, to your, to your descendants. So it's like he repeats part of the promise of God, part of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, it gets interesting. Chapter 14, there's a war. And if you watch movies with uh, trying to do war in the old days, this would be it. There's a whole list of kings. These guys, these guys, these guys get into a battle. Abraham is not in it. He has no dogs in this fight yet. All right? So there's a battle, and then there's going to be another battle. It's just all told, and you can read that. It's, it's, it's you know, kind of interesting, I suppose. Verse 8, then king of Sodom, he's part of this. But then you get to verse 12, and it gets interesting. Because as part of this other battle, some of these folks grab Lot and his posse from there by Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? Now, Lot is not, uh, doesn't have his heart right with God, but the bad guys get him. Okay? And they take Lot and all his stuff, and off he goes as spoil of, of, a, of a raiding party, of a, you know, an army. Well, I love this. So... Abraham, verse 14, Father Abraham, in his 70s, he doesn't just take care of sheep. No, he gets the boys. That's what he does. He says 318, not that anybody's counting, of his trained men. Those are, the, those are the folks in his household who take care of the sheep and the camels and the goats and stuff. And you understand, back in the day, if you need 911, you don't call 911. You go take care of it yourself. You go get the boys, and you say, hey, hey, guys, we're strapping on the armor. We're going after those guys, and we're going to take care of business the way it was meant to be. So that's what's going on. Abraham's in his 70s. Did I say that already? And he, he gets the guys. And, and, man, he goes after his nephew because family's family. It's not because Lot's, you know, all about it with God. He's not. He, that's my family. You took, you took some of us, and we're coming for you. So he gets 318 of his guys, and this is all full. This text is all full of, of tactical language. So he, he gets his guys born in his house. You know, these are the guys with swords and stuff under their robes. And he goes, he divides his forces, verse 15. Uh, he, he, he defeats them, pursues them. He gets his guys back lot and everything, and he comes back, verse, verse 16. He comes back in triumph. Now, we're not told about losses. None of that's in the text. 
but he gets back Lot, his nephew, all this stuff, the women and children and so on, and he comes back and says, there, don't mess with Abraham. Well, I'm reading that into the text. Now, verse 17. Here's where it gets interesting with Melchizedek. After his return from the defeat of Kedar Leomar and the kings who are with him, now, the king of Sodom comes out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. So king of Sodom, bad guy, right? Now, along with him comes Melchizedek. Melchizedek has three verses to his name in this text. Three. Isn't that interesting? That's it. There's, there, in fact, there's more material in the Old Testament about Balaam's donkey than there is about Melchizedek. He comes out of nowhere, and he, he fades into the sands of history this quickly. So Melchizedek, then, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Well, that's interesting. It sounds like communion elements to, in our modern day. He brings out bread and wine, and the text says he was priest of God Most High, El Elyon. God Most High. We'll say more about that term in a minute. And Melchizedek blessed him. That is, Melchizedek blessed Abram and says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That's the end of the story of Melchizedek. And then there's an interesting conversation with King of Sodom, with Abram. I think it's kind of fun to read as well. Sodom, King of Sodom says, Abraham, you can have my stuff too. And, and Abraham says, not a penny of it. I don't want you to ever say you, gave, you, made, you made Abraham rich. So keep your stuff. Isn't that interesting? No, no, I don't want anything to do with you. But Melchizedek is a different story. So in the text, he comes out of nowhere. We don't know anything about his genealogy, his past, so to be a Levitical priest, it was all about who your family was. But Melchizedek, not a, not a lick. He just shows up. And I mentioned already, it's like one meal. That's all we know of his life. One afternoon, he comes, bread and wine, and there's something in this meeting that causes Abram, who's received the promises, promise of Messiah, to say, this is a priest of God Most High. So he recognizes Melchizedek as a different kind of priest. Now, several things, if I may say, if you look at your sermon notes, uh, I want to comment on from this text. I, I say first, in an overwhelmingly pagan place, Melchizedek is presented as a priest of God Most High. This is an unexpected development. Well, it is. It's unexpected because in the Abrahamic covenant, God says to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham rightly would say, well, it's going to be through my family, through my lineage. This is amazing. Blessing for the whole world. And he travels into Canaan, this land full of pagan worship and idolatry. And here's somebody who worships the true God. I mean, who would have thought you're going from, you know, you're passing Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what's going on there and this other city. And that's not so good. And, and here in the Valley of Shabbat, the Valley of the King. You have this guy identified in the text for, for no explained reason, priest of God Most High. The term El Elyon, of course, El uh, in, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, would be a reference to God. Beth El, house of God. Uh, El, El Shaddai, and so on. You're, some of you are familiar with that, that term. El Elyon, uh, in this case, 
uh, would, would all, could be translated the God who is really God. God over everything. The one true God. So, so this is a nod to Melchizedek truly being a worshiper of, a priest of, the one true God in the midst of darkness. Can you imagine? Very interesting. So he blesses Abraham, and Abraham acknowledges him as a priest of the true God. Now, some of the names, elements, uh, God Most High, um, if you want a a further treatment of this, um, a a book I would suggest to you, uh, Don Richardson, a missiologist, this is a book that's probably 50 years old, Eternity in Their Hearts, by the guy who wrote Peace Child. Some of you are familiar with that story uh, from the, the annals of missions history. Um, but, but in his opening, uh, his preface here to this book, Richardson talks about this meeting, and he, he uses this as uh, kind of an introduction to the big argument he makes in this book, specifically that in every culture and every language around the world, Richardson would argue, that God has not left himself without witness, that there is somewhere, somewhere in that culture and language, a key to the gospel. That's your job to kind of look for and find. That's what the book Peace Child is about, uh, if you're familiar with that. So uh, this, this book, if you read the preface, you would find uh, much greater information about this. But, but the point is, he's a different kind, a different kind of high priest. Uh, as you look at your sermon notes again, uh, the text says little about him. He just shows up fully developed, fully grown, and a king. And further, he is a, he is a king priest. Now, why does that matter? Well, that's, that's impossible in the Levitical system. Uh, you didn't have that. You had priests and you had kings, kind of a separation of offices. In, in Melchizedek, you have a king priest. Isn't that interesting? And, and may I say, uh, the, the elements about his name that we saw reference to in the book of Hebrews, king of peace, that is Salem, which is, is part of the word Jerusalem, and probably the same location, it would seem. The, the ancient city of Jerusalem built right there. Here, here, long before Messiah Jesus, long before David, you have this, this guy who is a king of peace, Salem, Jerusalem. Those words are also connected to shalom, uh, wholeness, wellness, completeness. We've spoken about that term. So here he is. He's the king of peace, the king of Salem. And by his name, we read in Hebrews, king of righteousness. What does that mean? Well, his name, Melchi or Melech, to, to take his name apart, king, Zadek, Zadok, and various derivatives of that, righteousness or righteous. So his name means king of righteousness. And at the very same time, he's the king of Salem, the king of peace. And, and he's a priest of God most high. Where in the Bible do you find anybody who is king of peace, king of righteousness, and a great high priest? Oh, for goodness sakes. It points you all the way forward to Messiah Jesus, which is what the writer to Hebrews is grabbing a hold of. Three little verses. Now track with me here. Uh, Approximately 2000 BC, all of these details with Abraham, a thousand years later, Melchizedek shows up again in scripture. Psalm 110, verse four, a royal psalm, 
where God says, speaking of look, ultimately Messiah Jesus, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For a thousand years, there's been no reference that there is an order of Melchizedek. And if, so, so a thousand years later, God calls it out, Psalm 110. You're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So a different kind of priest. A thousand years later, God calls it. Then a thousand years later, yet, you come to the book of Hebrews, who expands on it even more fully. A high priest forever. That, that text in Psalm 110 is repeated multiple times in the book of Hebrews, as we have seen and will see again. Wow, how interesting. Now, I want to go back to Hebrews, if you're still with me there in Genesis, as I was. I come back then. What we just saw in Genesis is really what Hebrews 7, 1 to 3, is about. There are some um, who, who would look at Melchizedek and see in him a prefiguring of Messiah Jesus. Some would see him as a pre-incarnate Christ for a variety of reasons. Uh, starting in verse 4, you have the element, though, not only that he's a different kind of high priest, but that he is a greater high priest. And I want you to follow here the argument, if you will. So verse 4 <clears throat> says this, See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And then he's going to explain it. Look how great. If you look at my sermon notes, I, I put it like this. Abraham was great. Melchizedek was greater, comparative. And if you are into your grammatical terms, Christ then used the superlative, infinitely the greatest. Abraham was great. Melchizedek, greater. Christ, the greatest. That's where the text is taking us, okay? Uh, far greater in his priesthood, I note here, than the Levitical priests, acknowledged by Levi's great-grandfather. Well, indeed. So, uh, the text then, the writer is going to work with you through some details from the Old Testament. These descendants of Levi, that is the Levitical priests, who were in the priestly office, they received tithes from people. Well, we know that from reading the Old Testament. All right, from their brothers. So by receiving tithes, they're acknowledging that they're representatives of God, in a sense, representing, uh, receiving tithes, recognizing uh, great, uh, they're greater, so to speak, in their role because they represent God. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, he received tithes from Abraham. And, and the writer's making a deal about this. Wow, if you receive tithes, how? What is that about? And he's pointing to a different kind of priesthood. Verse 7 is, is kind of a logical statement. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the, by the superior. Well, indeed, in this case, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. That's the Levitical priests. In the other case, Melchizedek, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. So, so what is this, then? If you look at my notes, I'm wanting to keep it in, in simple terms. Tithes are always paid from the lesser to the greater. So Abraham to Melchizedek. Indeed, Melchizedek received those tithes. Abraham acknowledged Melchizedek's greatness, or greater than him, by paying those tithes. And Abraham received a blessing from Melchizedek. He didn't say, oh, 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 hold it right there. I don't need your blessing. Like he said to the king of Sodom, I don't need your money. He didn't say to the king of Mel to, to Melchizedek, I don't need your blessing. He received that blessing by doing that, acknowledging his greatness. <sighs> now, you with me on this? Right? This is working? Okay. The point of the text, again, is 
As in the Old Testament, there were human priests who stood before God and offered sacrifices so that God's people could be could have their sins covered until Messiah would come. That's what the Old Testament priest did, and they offered sacrifices again and again and again because the blood of animals could never pay for your sin. Okay? So a greater sacrifice was needed. That would be Messiah Jesus who would one day come. A different kind of priest, not a Levitical priest. We'll see in the section that follows, the Levitical priests had, had, had a number of problems. For one, they were sinners too. So when they got started in the morning, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves because their, their first job was to say, oh God, I'm a sinner too. Unlike Christ, who is a perfect, sinless high priest. And those sacrifices had to be offered again and again because they couldn't take away sin. No, Christ, as a greater priest, offered himself, the one who could permanently, for all time, pay for sin. The argument here is Christ is a greater high priest, a different kind and a greater high priest, the one that you and I need, one who lives forever, rather than one who's hindered by death from continuing. Well, I, I put on your sermon notes here, remembering the main point. I direct us again to verse 25, where this whole text is going. When we're here again, starting verse 11, uh, we're going to wrestle through a number of other details about this. But verse 25 is, the, is the, the goal toward which we're striving the whole time, that we would be assured Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. It's intended, however murky some of these things are, it's intended to give you confidence that Christ is the greatest high priest there could ever be because he continues forever. He does not have to offer sacrifices for himself. Those who draw near to God through him can come with confidence because he always lives to make intercession for us. I get stuck on the first part of verse 25. Uh, It's not to minimize the rest. He is able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save to the uttermost completely, time and extent, completely and forever. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. I, I, I was, did a little bit of a, a hymnal search this week. I do that periodically because I remember somewhere in my childhood there was a, a hymn that was written on this verse. It didn't make the cut of time, meaning I had to really look a little bit. But somewhere in my childhood, I remember a song based on this, Save to the Uttermost. Awkward to sing. The music is awkward. The words are awkward. It doesn't have meter, rhythm. I'm picking on it. But it was, it was, a, it was a songwriter attempting to say, sing it. <laughs> Save to the uttermost. Do you see this? Does it matter to you on your good days and your bad days? No, indeed, as Jesus said, John 10, nothing can pluck you out of his hand. See, we have such a great high priest. That's chapter 8, verse 1. See, the writer says, we have a great high priest like this, Jesus, Jesus. If you look with me at the responding to God's word part, part of our response, indeed, will be heading toward communion and remembering Christ in communion. But I want to remind you of these gospel elements that all spring to the front from thinking about Christ as our great high priest. First of all, I I mention here, your daily access to God does not depend on your worthiness. Do you see this? 
or your performance or your abilities or your credentials, your daily access to God is not based on those things. So when you wake up in the morning or conclude your day and say, oh my goodness sakes, what have I done? What, what was that? What was that? Please know that you have access to God yet because you have a Savior, Jesus, who paved the way and paid for your sin. Your, your daily access to God is not based on your worthiness, but on his. And I'm telling you what, that ought to matter to you a lot because we often don't get A's for performance, right? You understand what I mean here? There are days we feel it deeply. There are days we feel like failures. Days we're very aware of how badly we fall short. And, and we need to know as people of God that our daily access to him is not dependent on our worthiness, but on Christ's. So please get a hold of that. And when you come to pray, you stand before God, don't you start thinking, oh, what a miserable failure. Yeah, probably so, but you have a great high priest, right? The point isn't to say, I'm not that bad. No, you probably are, as am I. But you have a great high priest, see? So hang on to this. Further, your entrance into heaven someday will not depend on your performance in this life. And I'm not saying that sin doesn't matter. Not at all. If you think I'm saying that, you should read Romans 6, where Paul kind of, kind of deals with that. Now, I'm not saying minimize sin. I'm not saying don't take sin seriously. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying your entrance into heaven someday is not based on whether you earned it or not. Because you couldn't. You couldn't. You couldn't. It's based on Christ, who paid for your sin and holds the door open for you. It says, come on in, you're with me. So, so confidence before him, confidence in Christ, in Christ alone. And then I, I come back to Melchizedek here for a moment. How do you measure a life? How do you measure a life? Well, well we know little about him except one lunch meeting. And then the sands of time cover him up. As the sands of time will cover you up. Build a building, put your name on it, congratulations. Build a big estate, start a company, put your name slash enterprises. Well, good for you. (laughs) No, a successful life like Melchizedek, even if it's one little lunch meeting that points people to Jesus, really marks, it's like a signpost saying, look to him. See, that's the mark of a successful life. And that, that ultimately is all any of us should ask for. God, make me a signpost to point to Christ. Just, just let me do that. And then, then I'll be done. And if I can do that to the glory of God, then, then we'll have done well. That's what Melchizedek did, and that's what I want to do too. I hope you do. I want to pray for us. Great, great joy and confidence in Christ. And we'll remember Christ in communion. Don't close your Bibles. I want to reflect a little more on verse 25 as we receive communion. Pray with me. Our Father, um, there's so much uh, in the Bible that we have to work at to understand. And sometimes Melchizedek is, is, is part of that. Who's this guy? But Father, I thank you for telling us the things about him that you have. One who, one who points people to Christ king of righteousness, king of peace, priest of God most high. Oh, far greater is the one named Jesus, likewise a king of righteousness and king of peace, and the ultimate priest before the throne of God. Father, the one who intercedes for me, for us. How we thank you, sinners, all of us, and yet 
those who've come to Christ uh, saying, forgive me for my sin. Trust Christ in him alone. He's my savior. I'm with him. Covered at that moment by the righteousness of Christ. Our Father, for this we give you thanks. As we receive communion, our Father, prod our hearts if there are areas that are out of step with your will and plan for our lives. Uh, prompt in us a response of faith, if that is indeed our, our need today, that we would say, God, I believe Jesus died for me. I want Christ as my Savior. If that's the need in our heart, Father, draw it from us. Do that work in us today. And all of us, our Father, give us joy. Give us joy. We have such a Savior. And we thank you in his great name, Jesus. Amen. As always, we invite you who know Christ to share with us in receiving communion. Communion is, a, is telling the story of the gospel. The, the little cracker reminds us of the body of Christ nailed to a cross, broken for us. And the, the juice points us to his blood shed for us. It's intended to be a reminder to Christians again and again, remember Christ, remember him, remember the price that was paid that you can be forgiven. The way we serve communion these days, of course, is three communion stations, as you're familiar with, if you worship with us regularly. And if you would like to receive communion, uh, uh, then, then I would invite you, those of you in the outward aisles, if you'd come down the outer aisles this way, and then come return to your seats this way. Feel free to serve the person with you. Uh, it'll keep a few of us from having to come down. If there's someone near you who's mobility impaired, please feel free to, to, to serve them as well in the middle. If you would come down this aisle and then return that way, that would be wonderful. We'll all be headed the same direction. All right, but look around, find someone who might need to, to be served if you would, and then and I'll give you time now if you'd come. And remember to take both cups, um, the juice and the cracker, take them both. All right? Hang on to them when you get to your seat. I'll say a word, and we'll receive communion together. Let's remember Christ. Sometimes in our working with other people, we set up conditional things. Like with our kids, if you behave, we'll go to Disneyland. If you're a good kid today, we'll buy ice cream. You know how it is. Aren't you glad that God doesn't say to us, if you behave, I'll take you to heaven? Aren't you glad? If you'll just be perfect. I mean, it, for five minutes. It's not it. No, forgiveness, full and free. He gives us daily Jesus. Daily a Savior. Daily one who walks beside us. Daily, his patience and grace. Wow. Do, do you see it? Wow. A Savior. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. His body on the cross, nailed, bleeding, broken. The price of our redemption was high. And we come and we say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Let's remember Christ together. And likewise, as the little cracker points us to the body of Christ, so the juice points us to the blood of Christ shed for us. The text here in verse 25 gives a 
a hint, a nod toward the resurrection. He always lives. Indeed, he does. Resurrected from the dead, he always lives to make intercession for them. 1 John 2, 8. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. What's his name? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. (laughs) There's an advocate for you. Let's remember him together. I would love to pray together. Send us out with a word of blessing. Would you stand with me as we, as we do that together? Our Father, thank you for the word of God today. I thank you for the work of the Spirit of God. Thank you for how you faithfully use the preaching of your word, the fellowship of the saints, uh, worship in our singing and in our praying. You use these elements to encourage us how we need it to instruct and even to draw men and women to yourself, and you're doing that. We thank you for it. Thank you for your evident work in the life of this congregation. And I pray, our Father, that through these wonderful means of your daily grace, that you would grow us more and more into the image of Christ. I pray for this week ahead. We don't know what's coming in it, but you do. It's from your hand, and you'll walk with us in it. Our Father, rivet our hearts and our minds, our affections on Christ today is our prayer. And we thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you go. Have a good week. We will see you very, very soon.